Exploring the history of cannabis culture. One artifact and interview at a time. This is Canthropology. Presented by the World of Cannabis Museum Project. With your host, World of Cannabis Executive Director, Bobby Black. Greetings, fellow cannabis history buffs, and welcome to Canthropology, the podcast that explores the history of cannabis culture, one artifact and interview at a time. I'm your host, Bobby Black, former senior editor and columnist for High Times and the executive director of the World of Cannabis Museum Project. Thanks for joining us. As we all know, getting high can really help enhance creativity. So it's no surprise that throughout modern history, a great many artists and musicians have used marijuana to help inspire them in their work. But while creating art under the influence of cannabis may have been fairly common, featuring it as a subject matter is far less common. When we did begin to manifest in works of art, it mostly did so, as one might expect, in what were considered underground or even degenerate art forms in their time such as jazz songs in the 1920s and 30s, beatnik poems and novels in the 1950s, and then comic books, comic strips, and rock concert posters in the 1960s. Of course, the artists who created all of these bold, brilliant new genres of art would eventually come to be regarded as counterculture icons. My guest today is just such an artist. In a career spanning over four decades, this Analog artist in a digital world, as he's been called, has created well over a hundred posters for various musical venues and festivals. His work has been published in High Times and Sensimilia Tips magazines, as well as in the hardcover compendium The Art of Rock and his own anthology Sensimilia Sensations. He's a member of the Rock Poster Society and a former member of the Artista Gang and the Peanut Gallery, in which he collaborated and cohabitated with many fellow counterculture art legends of the time, including Alton Kelly, Stanley Mouse, and Victor Moscoso. In the early 1980s, he and his late partner Dave Sheridan created a series of iconic cannabis-themed paintings, posters, and characters, some of which he's been reviving recently in a new series of comic books. He's also a member of our museum advisory board and was named one of our 420 icons as part of a special Cannabis Business Awards live stream event we sponsored on April 20th to honor the top 100 cannabis influencers of all time. I'm very pleased to welcome to the show the High Priest of Cannabis Americana, Mr. Pat Ryan. Pat, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Bobby. So, Pat, you know, we have a bunch of your stuff in our collection, uh, but before we get mm -hmm. into talking about all that good stuff, I wanted to first uh, talk a little about you and, and get our listeners more acquainted with you. So it's my understanding that you, like me, you're a New York uh, transplant to California. You were born in New Rochelle and raised in Long Island. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, I was a lifetime ago. <laughs> so... Um, as a young man, when did you first decide or realize that you wanted to be an artist? Probably when I was like oh, six or seven years old, and I can draw better than everybody in my class. <laughs> so it was it was a calling right from the beginning. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, my grandfather was a landscape painter, and uh, my grandmother, when I was like eight or so, gave me my first set of oil paints. But she recognized uh, a talent in me. I, I was one of children. I was a middle child. So um, I started out, you know, um, drawing cartoons when I was uh, like in my 10, 11, 12, 13 years old. Uh, I was very heavily influenced by Mad Comics and Mad Magazines. That's what I wanted to do when I grew up, was to work for Mad Comics and work for the Mad People. And um, because that was like, culturally, it was satire that was exposing the um, the shortcomings of the, the uh, you know, leave it to beaver um, generation of uh, uh, um, Americans... Uh, becoming homogenized, you know. I had I was more of a, a rebel. I was like a rebel from the time I was a 
kid because I just didn't. Um, I just didn't buy the shit. <laughs> you know, I mean, and 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 I I grew up in a very um, in suburbia in a very um, conformist uh, society. Everybody was like getting married and having children and, you know, getting jobs and, you know, going to college and, you know, and I really wanted more to life than that. And then I started to like discover things like, oh, Bob Dylan and Jack Kerouac and um, Allen Ginsberg. And uh, I, I ended up going to, uh, uh, hanging out in Greenwich Village on weekends, you know, and and seeing the whole beat scene and the and the coffee houses and the jazz. I was really into jazz when I was young, and I would hang out at all the jazz clubs and stuff like that. And then um, in 1962, I fulfilled a lifetime dream that I had from the time I was a, a, a like a teenager of moving to California. I moved directly from New York to Hermosa Beach, California, where the surfing, it was 1962 and surfing was happening and the beach boys and all that kind of stuff. And I, I was, uh, I was subjected to that party scene and I loved it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I I, I let, actually left home on a two week vacation, and my family thought I was going for two weeks. I never came back. Wow! So I, I'm guessing that uh, smoking weed was part of that whole awakening in New York, and and part of your partying yep. in California. Oh, Bobby, you would you'd be surprised. I never even saw a joint when I lived in New York. Oh, even at all the jazz shows in the village and stuff. Yeah! 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 I, I never even considered it. I never even thought about it. I I, uh, um, I didn't really start smoking until I uh, moved to California and I lived on the beach and all the surfers, of course, uh, were all smoking grass, really bunk stuff. And um, that's when I uh, that's when I started smoking, like and. Uh, early 60s or so did you do you remember your first time getting high or was it just a kind of a blur no kind of a kind of a blur okay all right because some people have very specific memories of their first time and other people just say hey i started smoking around this time you know no no i i have i have very strong memories of my first acid trip and i mean that that really makes an effect on sure sure would you uh, would you classify yourself as a hippie? Would you, were you a hippie, or were you not quite in that that vein of thought? I was kind of like a beatnik from New York, trying to fit into the Southern California surfing scene. Hmm. <laughs> and um, actually, I, I I lived right across the street from right the lighthouse in Hermosa Beachwood, which was a jazz place, and I used to like sneak in there and. I see all the great jazz groups and everything like that. And right across the street from that was a place called the Insomniac. And it was like a coffee house that was open all night hmm. and people chess. And, you know, that's where I smoked some weed. And, you know, um, Hermosa Beach at the time was a very happening scene. Yeah. And, and uh, I, I lived there for two years until I moved to uh, the inner city. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I, I read that you worked it, uh, at some point in the 60s, you worked as a uh, advert- at an ad agency on the Sunset Strip. And I was going to ask you, yes. that, that must have been an amazing time to be uh, alive on the Sunset Strip. Uh, I know you like jazz, but did you get to see any of those amazing rock shows that were going down at the Whiskey and the Troubadour and stuff? Right. I worked at a, a uh, advertising agency that was directly across the street. From the whiskey a go go. Wow. And um, I was ma- married to a black woman, and I lived in the ghetto in uh, South Central Los Angeles, and I worked in Hollywood. So I was living like a dual life. Hmm. That was really strange. And uh, I had a, a, a great time living in a black neighborhood 
Because I, I grew up in an all-white neighborhood. There was no black people at all in my neighborhood. Yeah. And then I moved to a situation where I was the only white guy on the whole in, in the entire <laughs> block. And it, it changed me around. It really changed me around. And that's when I started taking acid and um, I got really weird. <laughs> Did you... Started hanging started hanging around with some Hollywood weirdos that were just like crazy, crazy people. <laughs> Did you get to see like the Doors or the Birds or any of those bands that were around back then uh, play? Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I got I got to see Elton John the first night that he played at the Troubadour. Wow. Yeah. Um, I got to see um, Frank Zappa. I, I saw a show where Frank Zappa ended the show at the Whiskey Go-Go and he, he said, okay, you kids, go home and kill your parents. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, Dr. John, I got to see the, the Greek Greek nice. review. Uh, um, I got to see all kinds of music. And uh, that that was uh, like a real bonus, a real bonus. So, um, so who were the crazy Hollywood types you, you were hanging out with that you were talking about? Uh, people, in, people in Laurel Canyon, artists and musicians and, uh, and hippies. Early, early hippies. Yeah. People that put, put um, uh, shows together and, uh, you know, just people that were living in somebody's garage. Yeah. Um, just crazy, crazies, crazies. So Some people took too much LSD. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, in, in uh, if I'm not mistaken, 1967, uh, what I think brings us to the first item in our collection, which is the Purple Haze painting for the Black Light Coaster, Poster Company of San I didn't Francisco. Do, I, no, I didn't do it in 1967. Oh, it was circa 1967. It, it, says, it says circa 1967 because that, that's when that style – it's more or less like a Rick Griffin kind of a style, and and plus a black light. Uh, and that poster can be looked at with a black light. I, I was like going for that black light look. Sure. But I actually did, did that poster in uh, uh, early two thousand, two thousand and three or four or something like that. Oh, okay. Um, let's 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 skip over that for a second then. So. Um... Uh, so in you know recently when you and I were communicating online, uh, you showed me some uh, sketches that you had found from from I think were back in 1970 that you had done for prototypes of the takeoffs on cigarette boxes, uh, right? And right. called yeah. Joint Venture or something. Can you tell us a little about that? Well, Joint Venture, I I had a studio on Sunset Strip. Um, after I left the advertising agency, uh, advertising agencies are complete and total bullshit. <laughs> they, they just completely bullshit the client. They bullshit everybody. And it's it just, it's such a phony world. It's insane. The people that, the people that I met through advertising agencies were just, uh, I don't know. I wanted to be an artist. And what I ended up being is an art director. And I was young and good looking. And I had a, fancy car and stuff like that. I was making money. And I ended up spending all my time taking clients to lunch and looking at portfolios and uh, interviewing photographers and getting typeset and all that kind of shit. And I went, this is not being an artist. This is being a flunky. <laughs> you know, I, I just uh, had to leave. And that's when I left L.A., um, Plus, uh, the, uh, the political and environmental stuff was getting real heavy. I, I lived in the ghetto during the Watts riots. Wow. I was the only white guy on the block, and um, things got real heavy after that with police and uh, shootings in the streets. And it got re And I had you know, four children, so I, I didn't want to raise my children in that environment. So I packed up the family like the Beverly Hillbillies and moved up, moved up to Marin County to Fairfax, where I live now. And, uh, you know, escape. I, I kind of liken it to escaping from East Berlin, you know, how people like had to get out. They, they, they risked their life to get out. They had to get the hell out of there and start a new life. And that's what I did. I moved up to Fairfax and I didn't know a soul. 
but I loved it, and it was Happy Hippie Land. So what? Seventy-one. Seventy-one. And so, what made you pick that area? Just was if you didn't know anyone there. Um, I found a house real cheap. Oh, okay. But you also you the good thing about it, I, I guess, is that you you were really close to the Bay Area, obviously, and there was still a. I mean, seventy one, the summer of love was over, obviously, but the I'm I'm guessing right. there was still a very thriving counterculture there. Yeah, it was, and and people had moved from uh, San Francisco proper up into Marin County. There's a lot of when I got there in seventy one, there was a lot of like bands forming and music happening and. I was doing posters for music venues and stuff. Um, there was a very vibrant scene going on and at the time. And you oh, opened up a little yeah. tiny studio of your own, right? Yeah, I had a, a real, real tiny studio. And um, then after that, I, I moved to a larger studio with uh, when I met Dave Sheridan. Dave Sheridan was doing the underground comics, and that was something I was really interested in. And so um, he kind of opened the doors for me, and I got, you know, some of my stuff published, and I did my own comic. I did a comic about hitchhiking, and it's called Hit the Road, which is very <laughs> rare, if you can find one. And um, then I started doing I worked on The Leather Nun with Dave, and uh, then Dave and I moved into a studio together. And um, after that, we both went to... Um, uh, Kelly and Mouse's studio, which was in San Rafael, which was like a, a two-story building, and Victor Moscoso had a studio in there, and um, it was just a big party all the time. I was there for five years. It yeah. was just an incredible experience. And that and that was the and that was called the Peanut Gallery, right? That's what you guys called the right. Peanut Gallery. Um, before, right. before we get too, too far ahead with that, I, I want to go back and, and mention, uh, talk about Dave Sheridan a bit because, uh, it seems like you, okay. you, you and he were really, really close. Uh, you guys were partners. And he friends. was my best friend. Yeah, he was my best friend. How did you, Sher- Sheridan, uh, like you said, he, he had worked on, uh, in 74, he worked on fab, uh, the fabulous furry freak brothers. Right. And he also, right. he also right. created dealer McDope, which, en- which ended up becoming a, a board game that was published in 1971. I remember that when I first started working at High Times in the in the 90s, in the early 90s, um, we had a, a dealer McDope game around the office, and, and it was always so much fun and cool. Um, how did you meet uh, Dave, and and what was your relationship like with him? Well, when I met him, um, he lived in San Anselmo. I live in Fairfax, which is like towns right next to each other, and I. But uh, when I was in Berkeley, I, I got a, a copy of uh, a comic that he did called Mother's Oats. And inside the, the front cover was a fake ad that he had made about it. It said, would you like to get fucked by a famous artist? And, and he, had <laughs> put his, he had put his home address on the bottom <laughs> of it. I love it. So I walked over to his house, you know pack a few joints and uh, and a, a six-pack of beer and uh, knocked on his door and introduced myself, and we became best friends right away. It was amazing. Wow. I mean, we, we it was like I had met somebody who had the exact same mind set as I did, and and he had experienced a lot of the same thing, being a, you know, a Catholic kid growing up in in Cleveland and um, raised by nuns and all that kind of crazy shit. <laughs> and uh, we had so much in common. And um, then we started working together. We formed a company called COD Graphics and moved to Fairfax. And, and um, we started working on things and we would work on, uh, you have to really trust another artist. When you're working on something and then you hand it off to him, but finish this up, will you? You know, I completely trusted him to finish it and make it look great. I mean, he was like an incredible cartoonist and uh, just a brilliant guy. And unfortunately, he died way too soon. He, he was only 36 when he died. Oh. Was he? Yeah, died in uh, 82. Oh. But... Um, 
I I stayed at that studio for another 10 years or so and started incorporating other things and started doing video productions. We also did these video productions and stuff. And um, that's where we started Artista. We started the whole Artista gang there. Yeah. Well, before we before we get to Artista, I do want to go back for a second to the peanut gallery stuff because we kind of glossed over that. Um, so so the the peanut gallery was this big building, as you mentioned, uh, that you guys rented in in San Rafael. Uh, you were there mm-hmm. with uh, with Dave and with uh, Stanley Mouse, Alton Kelly, Victor Moscoso, just b- some of the hugest names in art at the time in, in counterculture art. So tell me, uh, you know, what these guys were like and what, what kind of parties you guys had. Cause it, like you said, it must've been some amazing, amazing times there. Well, Dave used to make this beer called, um, black death. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, we would have black death parties and it was like basically rent parties. And, um, we charge like five bucks. And you, you know, you get all the beer you can drink plus a Black Death t-shirt. The Black Death t-shirt actually became a, a pretty popular item because, uh, Harold Hessman, who was played Johnny, whatever, Johnny something rather from WKRP Cincinnati. Johnny Fever. Always, Johnny, yeah, yeah. He was a DJ. He, he wore it all, he wore his shirt all the time. Black Death t-shirt. He was a good. He was a good friend of uh, Kelly's and and from the old days. Kelly knew a lot of people, a lot of people. That's cool. And 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 um, you know, we had some showbiz connections. Uh, but anyway, the, the black death, um, the black death parties became outrageous because uh, word caught on and people started coming and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And then in um, 1978, I decided, why don't we put all our energy together and have a big show, a, a group show from all the artists in the peanut gallery? That would make sense, right? I mean, <laughs> there's like nine artists there. So we put a big show. It was called the Concrete Foundation of Fine Arts Show. And I designed a poster for it that's like the uh, a Chinese uh, communist uh, style propaganda style poster hmm. have you seen that yes i have uh it's on yeah. my list of things right. i was going to ask you about <laughs> right right well that we we raised money we were raising money for rent once again and not only did we raise money for rent but we sold the original and ended up getting i ended up getting like 300 prints all signed and numbered by all the guys in the studio so wow. I still have a stash of those, and um, I still sell one every once in a while. But um, that that was the thing that put us over the top. That was like put us on the map. Really wow! Cool. I think we might need to get uh, one of those for the museum. <laughs> you want to get one for the museum? Uh yeah. I mean, that's a piece of history right there for sure. Yeah, I I got them. Cool, them. cool. Well, we'll have to we'll have to circle back with you on that one. Um, yeah, yeah. But uh, so, what kind of stuff were you and Dave working on during this time? I know you did you did a series of uh, Native American, uh, an Indian series. Was that around this time, or was that later? No, that was during that same time. I did those, I did those in the seventies, like from seventy four. Actually, it started out in nineteen seventy four in in January. I was commissioned to do a big mural that I still had. It's all rolled up on canvas. It was for a turquoise jewelry store in San Francisco. And it was like a painting of the, um, uh, the Monument Valley, the Navajo land. And the Navajos were making this turquoise jewelry and there was like dancers in the sky and everything like that. And it's seven feet high by 16 and a half feet long. Wow. And uh, that that started my interest in painting, and I did a lot of research, and I ended up doing something called the Wounded Knee Memorial Series. It was like 12 different paintings of 12 different tribes. Um, I was going to make calendars out of it and all kinds of stuff, but it ended up being, you know, I got a bunch of three-foot square paintings, but 
I can't exhibit them anywhere. Just like, mm, just another thing I did. But Dave and I together started working on, um, we'd sit around smoking joints and coming up with names, brand names, fictitious brand names. And we had a whole list of them. And so we did what became the California Home Growers Association. Right on. And that yeah. was uh, that was after the peanut gallery, though, right? Actually, we started in the peanut gallery. Oh, okay. When we moved to Fairfax, you know, I continued it until Dave died. So in, in 1979 was when the peanut gallery ended up disbanding, right? What, what happened with that? Was it just right. was it because you lost the building or did you guys just go your own separate ways? <laughs> No, the lady that owned it, the building was owned by this 90-year-old lady who um, passed away. And her her um, daughter and her husband took over the building and went, wow, we can make money from this. Because rent was so cheap. She was renting a, this huge building for peanuts. That's what they call it, peanut gallery. <laughs> and and, and uh, I was paying $60 a month for my studio. Wow. Nice studio. A real old building. The building was built in 1870, and it had like 16-foot uh, ceilings. It was it was just a great place to work. Plus, I got to like hang out with those guys and, um, you know, borrow books from them. And wa- I watched Kelly and Mouse create uh, a bunch of their real fantastic pieces, some of their best pieces that they ever did. Like the Tiger Rose piece and uh, uh, all kinds of uh, uh, paintings that they did, and they started working for Journey at that time too. Yeah, they did a lot of uh, classic album covers as well, right? Uh, Santana, Journey, Steve Miller, right? They did a whole yeah. bunch of different stuff. Yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, the Steve Miller Greatest Six uh, album, Stanley Mouse did, and uh, they hired me to do the lettering on it. I did the lettering on it. Nice. And when it when it came out, it became a platinum record. And so, you know, um, if you look at the credits, the credit for lettering doesn't have my name on it at all. It's got this guy's name who was the agent. I won't mention who he is, but he was the agent for um, Journey, and he was uh, he was kind of like a one of these sleazeball rock and roll. <laughs> um, yeah, guys, you know you've heard so many stories, and and they're they're all true. They're all true. <laughs> uh, so, you know, they, they they just appear on the scene and they try to take over. Yeah, yeah, those kinds. All right, well, we got to take a quick commercial break, but please stick around, everyone, because uh, we'll be right back with more from Pat Ryan on anthropology. All right, welcome back, everyone. Uh, Bobby Black here with iconic counterculture artist Pat Ryan here on Canthropology. Um, so, Pat, before the break, we had just talked about how in 1979 the Peanut Gallery building, where you were uh, working with all these great artists, uh, kind of disbanded, and you were moving on. So, at that point in 1980, I believe you and your best friend Dave Sheridan moved. Uh, back to Fairfax and opened your COD graphics company consistently overdrawn, right? <laughs> That's it. That's it. <laughs> so you said you guys were working on – that's about around the time when you guys were really developing your California Home Growers Association project, right? Tell us, tell us more about that. Right. Well, that was something that we had been working on for years and years and um, – I ended up doing most of the work because Dave got sick right after that. And I wanted to finish it up before he got real sick. And um, we published it. We published it in 82. He died in 82. We published the, the California Home Growers Association in 82. And we first came out with um, the, the, a package of postcards and stickers like the old-fashioned postcard uh, style. And we also made them as T-shirts, and, and uh, then we thought we'd go into marketing, 
and we had a few. We had a good list of uh, like bookstores and head shops and things like that. And we thought that you know oh, this is going to be great. We're going to like go into big business here, and that was when uh, uh, Ronnie Reagan and Nancy Reagan said, "Just say no." Huh. And all these head shops closed down. Yeah. In fact, that was when we, we did put some ads in, in uh, High Times in 83, I think it was. Yeah. Like a quarter quarter page color ads. Yeah, they did a little piece on you guys too, a little article. Yeah, and they, right. They did a, a, a press release on it. But what started out as a fantastic dream ended up being a, like – Mm, not so fantastic. <laughs> yeah. So, so, uh, so you guys just ma- you guys just made up your own kind of brand names and strain names, uh, fictitious ones for for the yeah, yeah yeah, and just made these cool little uh, artworks that were supposed to be like the labels for the for that type of weed, right? That was the idea, right? It was all based on uh, like orange crate label art because the, the orange crate labels were like a a romanticized uh, vision from California of, uh, you know, the orange groves. And it, it it made a lot of people came West because of that, because they romantic um, visions that they had of California with, uh, you know, fruit growing everywhere. And uh, this was supposed to be the same kind of thing. Yeah, so you so you had that uh, piece in High Times in '83, and then in the following months, they also did a like four-page cartoon that you were involved with called uh, Doctor McDope and the Great Cocaine Case, and that was yeah. you and uh, an artist named Siegel. Now, who who is no, Siegel? He's not, he's not an artist. He's he's the guy that wrote it. He was a writer. Ah, okay. he's a doctor. He's, he was a good friend of Dave's. He was a doctor who. Um, uh, he worked at UCLA psychiatry department. He's a psychologist, and he uh, was like an expert on drugs. And he specialized in cocaine because he was doing a lot of cocaine. <laughs> but <laughs> but he he, um, he him and Dave worked on a series of things with. Uh, uh, in one of Dave's comics, he worked with uh, Dealer McDope. He was working with Dealer McDope. So after Dave passed, he wanted to continue it and do Dr. McDope. Actually, we did some other things I just remembered that High Times published. Uh, they were like these little black and white drawings uh, about um, odd drug things that Dr. McDope was involved in. Really? Uh, I, I think, yeah, I think I did fine. And that was around the same same year? Or, or seven of them. Huh? Was, was that around the same year? Mm, maybe after? Maybe after. No, I think I think it was probably before. It was probably before that. I'll have to check the archives and find those. Right right after Dave got it. It was called The, um, the Doings of Dr. McGope or something like that. Check the archives. All right. Yeah. I'll have I'll to check the archives. Like 82, 83. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So even though the peanut gallery had disbanded and you guys had moved by this time, uh, you still kept in touch with a lot of those – most of those artists because you ended up starting a new art collective, which you guys called the Artista Gang, which uh, I think is yeah. really, really cool. Tell us a little about the Artista Gang. Well, the Artista Gang is, is still happening. We still have – Parties, but now everybody's way older. <laughs> uh, it was basically uh, Alton Kelly's baby because uh, he was into hot rods and uh, uh, going to car uh, car clubs and all that kind of stuff. And he thought if we wore these jackets, we, we had these black satin jackets with red piping down the sleeves and the Artista Dragon embroidered on the back and we had really cool looking jackets and when we figured we'd go around to all these shows and you know be a gang we weren't really a gang we were just a bunch of artists we, i don't think any of us rode, drove a motorcycle at all <laughs> i don't think so 
But um, uh, all they were were extensions of the party because we always threw great parties. So we started getting a mailing list, and we ended up having like 300 people or so on the list. And we would send out postcards and say, okay, here's the next party. And everyone would show up and we'd party our ass off. And we ended up using just about every venue there was in, in Marin County because um, we never got invited to go back <laughs> the second time. We, and we had some great bands. We had, like the Dinosaurs were our band that followed us everywhere. They opened for us. There was a bunch of old guys from uh, um, the Hate ashbury days, the uh, Barry Milken and John Cipollino and, um, you know, some some old-timers. And and um, we threw our parties, and uh, um, that was that. And, and at one party that we had, uh, the, it was the first California Home Growers Association and artists combined, artista combined party in 1983, I think it was, or 84, I'm not sure. Um, and it was uh, in this exclusive neighborhood in San Antonio called uh, Sleepy Hollow. And they had this road, Butterfield Road, that goes into Sleepy Hollow. And we had uh, like 21 people in gorilla suits on roller skates going in the parade going down Butterfield Road to the clubhouse where we had the party. And in the back of the clubhouse by the pool, we had the first bud judging contest that we did. Wow. And that was like 83. And um, we had like all kinds of uh, samples of strains that people brought in from all over the place. And um, the winner was the guy from Santa Cruz, was uh, Dave Watson. Ah, Skunk Man, Sam the Skunk Man. The skunkiest skunk seeds. He had something that was so sticky, nobody had seen anything like this before. <laughs> it was like outrageous. So did you guys and, know? Did you guys know him? Were you friendly with him, or he just showed up for the party? Oh, he, no, 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 no. He he contacted me because he wanted to. You see if I had any more uh, labels in my collection, because he was collecting these labels, and they were labels that actually growers had used, and they put them in their packages and stuff, and that's what he was collecting. And I had a I had a good collection of these too, you know, from all over the country. Yeah, we have quite a few in our collection for the museum as well. We have we have a good uh, at least a dozen, maybe twenty uh, of the original labels. Uh-huh. Yeah, we have a uh-huh. lot of cool ones. So that's how I met Dave, and um, he s- submitted his uh, his buds for the contest and won hands down. And um, we had, like, every year after that, we'd have the budgeting contest, and it became ridiculous because there were so many submissions. It was like, after a while, we had, like, 20 or 30 submissions, and who... Who has time? We, it would take two or three days to sit around to judge them. And all of those, those always became weird. But um, that was really fun. That was really, really fun. We had a good time. Yeah. Were there any other uh, growers or smugglers or dealers that you guys were friends with that, that stand out that you remember from the time? Dealers? Oh, boy. <laughs> I mean, anybody that stands out that you remember. Smugglers, dealers. That's what everybody was doing in Marin. Everybody was a fucking <laughs> Everybody. You know? And um, I knew a lot of women who were smuggling, uh, going into Colombia. And I knew people with boats and planes. And I, I knew more people than I needed to know. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, eventually the Artista gang uh, this is what I read online eventually reached around 700 members which is which is pretty uh, incredible. You did the you did the logo, right? Didn't you work on the dragon logo? Yes. Yes. Dave and I designed it actually and and uh we painted it and Kelly did the lettering that wraps around it that says Artista. Cool, cool. But 
we all did this in collaboration. And uh, also from around this time, uh, if I'm not mistaken, is when you did your painting called Indoor Bud, which is a uh, a, big, oh, yeah. a big fat bud on a red background, which was used as the cover for uh, Sense Amelia Tips magazine for their fall winter 1985 issue, which I'm proud to say we have the original of that painting now in our museum collection. Can you tell us a little about the background for, for that painting? Well, I did that painting with my friend Benny Perini. He had a he had a beautiful bud, and we decided we we're going to do a portrait of Bud. So we did the portrait. Uh, I I got some jacquet prints made of it, and I sold a few of them. And one guy told me, "I I love this, but I want to see more um, like crystals. I want to see crystals on it, man. You know, there's no crystals on it. So what I did was I got clear acrylic paint." And put that on there and then sprinkled uh, glitter on it. <laughs> and uh, it ended up being really cool. So I, in the book, the Centimia Sensations book, I have it on the inside. As soon as you open the page, you see it. And I made sure that they added the, uh, all the glitter. So, so the bud really, really has crystals. Yeah. That's it's a it's an amazing piece. We're so so proud and uh, to have it in the collection. Um, how did uh, how did it get end up on the cover of Sense Amelia Tips? Were you friendly with those people at the magazine, or did they contact you? Oh or? yes, yes. I had been working with Tom Alexander. I did another coat for him that has an outdoor bud. Uh, I think I had done that previously, and I also did some advertising in there for the California Home Growers Association in exchange for doing art. Um, I did some art for him, and he put my ad in, in in his magazine, and then I did two two different covers: that the one with the indoor bud and one with the outdoor bud. Cool. But he was he was a cool guy. I just I I used to talk to him for hours. He was really like a real crusader, a guy, a warrior. He was like, and they were fucking with him really bad. Oh. Really, they they wanted to take him down so bad. Yeah, High Times, uh, Sense Amelia Tips, those those pioneers in, in uh, counterculture publishing were really targets for, for many years by the government. Yeah, they messed with him. But he got the last laugh on them because he moved to Hawaii and, and started a growing magazine that was basically for growing orchids, which is big, big, big business in Hawaii. So he actually did better as a result. Well, um, we got to take another commercial break real quick, but uh, please stick around because we will be right back with more from artist Pat Ryan here on Camden Polygon. All right, we are back once again. Uh, my guest this episode is counterculture artist Pat Ryan. So you guys uh, had done the Peanut Gallery, then you did the Artista Gang. That was throughout the 80s. And then in 1992, you left and moved to the Emerald Triangle, right? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. So what prompted that, uh, what prompted that move? I was kind of like, I couldn't afford Marin County anymore. It became real expensive. And I was busting my ass just to make rent. And I had a studio. I was paying rent on the studio and phone bills and gas and blah, blah, blah. I had like two expenses in my house. And it just became overwhelming. It, it, and I, I was starting to get older. And I went, screw this. And my kids had all grown up and got married and had their own life. And I decided I wanted to, you know, go back to my roots. So um, my friend Doug Green, who uh, had the, um, was a big founder of the Material Community Center, said, if you move up here, I can guarantee you um, that you'll be doing at least two or three posters a month for these different gigs that they had at the Material Community Center. And it was true, and I did. And um, I dragged my poor wife up there. She was not 
ready to. It was like pioneer style. Yeah. Oh boy. Had to chop, <laughs> chop firewood every morning, and uh, you know, it's it's a, a struggle just to 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 survive. And when the sun goes down, everything goes down. It's a pioneer existence, really. It was really weird. And we moved into a log cabin. We lived in this log cabin in the fall, and it was beautiful. It was like being in a state park or something. Real romantic, real nice, uh, nature every day. I was having a great time. And um, then winter came, and it was like, <sighs> it was cold. It was freezing cold. And the log cabin has little uh, holes in it, you know, where the where the logs go together. There's little pieces out, and the wind would blow in. It was uh, it was pretty nasty. Huh. So we uh, we eventually got a place in Redway, which was where I wanted to be anyway. And uh, uh, we were living uh, above a a, uh, a winery. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> Some cool. really great. Crazy people. There's some, there's some wacko people up there, man. <laughs> I mean, really, really, really. I thought I had seen crazy people before. I've never seen anybody as crazy as these people. <laughs> but but they were good. They were, there was a good feeling of community there. I really loved it. Um, and I did do posters for all the reggae shows and reggae on the river. Because I, I had done... Uh, reggae on the River in uh, 92, yeah, 90, 92 and 95, I think. And um, I got to, you know, get backstage and smoke splits with all the guys from Third World and, you know, hang out with the Neville Brothers and cool. you, you name it. All these great groups came through. And um, I stayed up there for seven years until it got too wet and too damp. But what I did when I was up there was I did a whole series of T-shirts. That's how I got involved in that whole T-shirt thing, starting with Humboldt Honey, which is a real famous one, and um, uh, Red Eye and some uh, Drive Through Bud. That's when I did the uh, the Drive Through Bud. I came up with that idea. That's something you know that, that uh, we can talk about in a minute. But I really loved it up in Humboldt. It was it was strange, but it was it was a lot of fun. But we had to move back because we were getting old. My wife had had uh, rheumatoid arthritis, and uh, living in that damp woods was like really killing her. It was really messing with her. So uh, we had to move, and we moved to Glen Ellen, uh, into a house that was way up on the hill on Trinity going up into Napa. Are you familiar with the, where Napa County and Sonoma County go together? Yeah, somewhat. Not like, not intimately, yeah. but somewhat, yeah. Well, well, there's this one road, Trinity Road, that we lived on. It was, uh, we were up at 2,000 feet, and then it goes down the other side, down into uh, uh, Oakville, in, into Napa. But anyway, it was such an isolated house that my mentor as far as growing was concerned, decided this would be the perfect grow situation. So we turned the garage into a, a grow room, and then we turned the uh, the closet. I had a big closet in my bedroom, so we turned that into the mother room, and I started doing clones, and I started doing an entire in, indoor grow scene. Nice. Because I had never grown, and but I I met when I was in Humboldt County, I met all the the growers, the best growers. We did a lot of trimming, and uh, got to meet a lot of people. And um, this one guy set me up in my garage and uh, invested some money and got lights and and uh, all the things you need in in a, a, a grow growing situation. And we were growing for like three years, I think, up there. And I was growing some really wicked bud. It was like, uh, it was called Orange Crush. Yeah. It was just dynamite stuff. And I had a friend who lived right, right down the hill who would buy anything I, I got. Anything I got, I would just drive over to him. He would give me the cash. It was incredible. <laughs> and... um I was getting four thousand dollars a pound. Wow! 
that was like a peak. That yeah. was ridiculous. Yeah. It's not even close to that now. No, pre-legalization prices. <laughs> I was busting my ass. I was working. <laughs> I like I, I hadn't planned on working that much, but um, I was working. I was like changing soil and going to uh, Home Depot all the time, and you know, all of a sudden I became a farmer. Yeah, and, and um, you can't leave your plants alone because something might happen overnight. And uh, sure enough, I got invaded by spider mites. Uh, yeah. And spider mites ruined my crop. And then I just like, it went out of control. And then, and then it, the white, white flies and all kinds of stuff started invading. And yeah. it was just like, that was the end of that scene. So I moved <laughs> away from that. Do you have uh, do you have any favorite strains? Are you more of a sativa or an indica guy? What are your what are, what is your go to strains? I'm a sativa guy. I like I like um, uh, Blue Dream. I like Blue Dream so much that I I did a shirt. It's just a shirt now. What I want to do is use it on something else. But the Blue Dream was uh, just perfect for me. You know, every strain is you know it, it's a matter of taste. It's like wine. You know. Some people like Pinot Noir. Some people like, you know, Cabernet. You know, they like it stronger. I like uh, the Blue Dream because it gives me a very creative high for like two or three hours. And I still can function perfectly. That's good. That's always good. And it's it's really great for creativity. It's it just like, uh, I wish I had more. In fact, I'm, I'm running out of weed. I need to get some weed. <laughs> This quarantine is Batman. Like, I had a huge stash, and I went, well, at least I have enough stash to last me. Uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, you were mentioning T-shirts. Uh, we have another item in our collection that's a T-shirt, and at first I didn't even realize it was your design, but after doing some research on you, I realized that it was, and it was the uh, like a Don't Tread on Me T-shirt with the snake. Oh, yes. What, could oh, you yes. tell us a little about that? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I did that for... My friend Doug Green. That was in 1983. Uh, I had known Doug for quite a while. He's a, a, a guy who was like MC of the Ray Down the River shows and stuff. And he had he was part of the family dog. He was Chet Helms like protege when he was young. And I met Chet, Chet through him. And anyway, um, Doug wanted me to do this design, and he had had a T-shirt made that somebody else did that they had, don't tread on me. And he wasn't very pleased with it. So he came to me and I did this beautiful painting and, um, I took it up to him and, um, we made shirts out of it. And I still have like two of the shirts that were printed in 1983. They were printed and they look so good. It's like one of the best printing jobs I've ever seen. And, um, his wife has a painting now. He's, uh, Doug has passed away, but his wife uh, has a painting now up in uh, in Garberville. And um, uh, when I went up there, he she like showed me around, and I stayed at his house. And I went to out to Well Gulch where his his wife was growing. She's she was the grower. Uh, I found when I lived in Humboldt that the women were more into the actual growing in the garden scene than anybody else because um, they were growing vegetables for their families anyway. That's what they that's what they were doing. They were growing all their own food. So these women became like connoisseurs of, uh, you know, growing techniques. And, and um, uh, they were the best growers as far as I was concerned. But anyway, that, that uh, Don't Tread on Me is very special to me. It's, it's like... Uh, Kind of my introduction to the whole Humboldt County scene. Cool, cool. Uh, we got to take one more quick commercial break, but don't go away because we'll be right back with more from Pat Ryan here on Campus Politics.
Welcome back, everyone. Bobby Black here with you again with artist Pat Ryan, a member of the World of Cannabis Advisory Board. So, Pat, let's talk a little about what's been going on since in the more recent years uh, where we last left off. You had moved back down to Sonoma from Humboldt. And then in the 2000s, you had a lot of uh, exciting new things starting to happen. Uh, in, tw- in 2011, uh, Last Gas Books published a 40-year anthology of your works called Sensimilia Sensations. Uh, it's a book of uh, like postcards of your different artwork, right? Right. That was a collection of uh, – there's 30 different postcards in it. And some of them are actually T-shirt designs, um, but most of them were you know, the, the postcards. And uh, some newer designs, too. And that's when I met my publisher, Vince Dugar. uh, I had a thing called uh, Golden Frog Press. And uh, I had just come out in 2011. I had just come out with this thing from the chip thing. And I I had met Vince through uh, different uh, trip shows, the Rock Poster Society, because he was... Had his stuff there. He was sort of like a collector uh, of vintage, uh, you know, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Uh, mostly underground, mostly underground stuff. But anyway, Vince convinced me that I should start doing comic books again. So I did uh, a bunch, a series of comic books, all based on uh, the Sensimia Sensation designs. And um, it ended up being. Um, the first one was the Tales of the World Famous Drive-Through Bud, and it featured, uh, you know, uh, Humble Honey, Super Skunk, Bazilla, and other characters that I had created that were part of the Sensimia uh, uh, Sensation book. And um, we started going around to um, different um, hemp cons and comic cons and stuff like that. I mean, Actually, we went to, in 2013, we went to um, the San Diego Comic Con. Cool. Took a, little, took a little road trip down there and spent three days in there. And we had just this one book. We had the Tales of the World Famous Drive-Through, but we hadn't, we hadn't added any new comics yet because I hadn't even done them. But I was overwhelmed at the San Diego Comic Con by that. Uh, the masses of people. There were so many people, and there were so, there were so many cosplay people. You know, like yeah, <laughs> hundreds of Wonder, Wonder Women, and and everything was like big and sponsored by Warner Brothers and Marvel Comics, and you know all the big names and Disney and yada yada yada. And um, we had one. We had a little teeny booth. And we had one comic. We saw we we sold out. We sold our comic out. Oh, that's awesome. nobody had anything even close to that. Yeah, nobody, nobody was doing uh, any comics about cannabis, and I don't think anybody has since. I, I just I can't understand it because it's such a funny topic. It lends itself to the comic thing quite easily because it's all like you know imagination and. And humor and um, yeah, no, I, I remember. I yeah, even when I was working at High Times, I would look in and old in the old days. Man, they had Dope Rider, they had the Freak Brothers, they had so many different. Uh, there was, of course, the uh, you know, R. Crumb did all his stuff. There was a lot of uh, amazing comics that had weed references in them, and now it seems like you're you're one of the only few remaining people doing it. Uh, yeah, I mean, so you started off with the world-famous drive through Bud, and now you've had a couple of spinoffs. Since then, uh, you have a number of different issues out now, uh, spinoffs of Budzilla, Super Skunk, and stuff. And you also do uh, Bong Wars, too, which is a Star Wars takeoff, which I think is really fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's a different artist. Uh, he does uh, – uh, that's Nathan Gomez. That's one of the guys in our group, you know. We, we, we ended up needing to hire other artists because – it, it took off. We got like a dozen comics, different comics now. That's cool. In fact, in fact, Vince is doing a whole a whole series of kind of like uh, EC takeoff comics, like uh, Weed Wolf. Uh, Weed Wolf, right? Is like a werewolf. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Weed Weed Wolf and uh, 
sales from the bank side and, uh, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. So, you know, the comic thing is expanded. There's going to be an anthology as soon as uh, Good Times Return. Uh, there's going to be an anthology of uh, all my comic art in one book that we're going to be doing. That's that's the, the next project. Cool. We have all of your comics in our collection as well as uh, some of the merch that's associated with it, uh, buttons, right. postcards, all that kind of cool stuff. Um, yeah. And then uh, you also sell uh, G-Clay G prints of your work as well on your website right. and stuff. Um, and then in 2018, you, you actually did a gallery show, didn't you? Uh, Cannabis Americana, The High Art of Pat yeah. Ryan. Tell us about yeah. how that came together. That was a gallery in in, um, in Santa Rosa. I was doing, uh, I met this guy through, through uh, the Chips people who was doing blotter art. And uh, I did uh, two pieces. I did a super skunk as a blotter. And I did a a, um, a Peter Tosh uh, one that I, I had done as blotter. So this guy wanted me to... Uh, do a show at this gallery and we put together this fantastic Vince did all of our business and um, uh, Keith who I also work with uh, Keith from uh, Matola River Studios he prints all my t-shirts so we all got together and, and did this show because we had done you know we had banners we had all kinds of stuff because we had done the um, the Emerald Cup shows had accumulated all this merchandise and all this stuff so we had plenty enough to do a uh, a gallery show. So we did this gallery show, and it was beautiful. It was like just an incredible uh, uh, vision that was brought together. I was so thrilled by it. But on the opening night of the show, nobody came because uh, that Paradise Fire was uh. raging, raging, and, and the sky was like, filled with ash and people walking around wearing masks and stuff and nobody was out on the streets. So that ended up being a complete flop. Oh, well, that's, <laughs> a sh that's a shame, but I'm sure you'll have other opportunities. Uh, I know I would love to see a, a showing of your art. Uh, maybe, maybe sometime down the road, once our museum is open, we can, uh, we can arrange a, a gallery show for you. Yeah, that would be great. That would be great. Meanwhile, I'm, I'm doing the designs, um, uh, I just finished this blueberry Kush one that I'm very proud of. Oh yeah, I love that beautiful. one. You showed that one and to I'm, us on uh, when you came yeah. on the live stream on 420 on our uh, 420 Icons live stream. Right, I had just finished it. I had just finished it, and I'm, I'm working on one right now called White Widow. Nice, awesome. Which, which is another uh, strain that's very popular. So what I want to do is do a series of um, designs that are. Just the names of strains that people know. Yeah, you know, like their 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 favorites. Some are really hard to do though, because some have really wacko names that just, just <laughs> don't translate to you know yeah. the graphically visual uh, image imagery. You know, like I did I did one for a ice cream cake, and that's just for a t-shirt. I just did that one for a t-shirt because it's so. It's so cartoony. See, I'm cartoonist, basically. Yeah. But what I want to do is get away from that and do some fine art that's kind of like has a cartoon bent to it, you know, because I, I can't lose the cartooniness. <laughs> it's just what I am. It's just, you know, the way I was, the way I was raised. It was just like, you know, I'm a cartoonist. What yeah. It goes back to I that old uh, Mad Magazine inspiration days, yeah. right? <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. I just can't get rid of it. So. Well, I gotta say, uh, seeing that um, blueberry Kush poster that you did, uh, it's absolutely gorgeous, and uh, it's definitely not very cartoony. It is fine art, as far as yeah. it, to my eye. And uh, yeah. I would just say that, uh, like a fine wine, you've just gotten better with age. I must say, you're you're, you're definitely at the top of your game, my friend. Thank you. I, I feel good. I feel good about it, you know. And I'm, uh, you know. I'm 78 years old now, and I, you know, I don't know how much gas is left in the tank, but uh, huh. I'm I'm just going to ride it out until yeah. that's it. 
That's all I have. And I'm, I'm in, kind of enjoying life right now. And um, things are going to get better. Things are going to get good. Yeah. Well, um, I have to say that we are super happy to have some of your items in, in our collection. Hopefully, I think we'll probably be acquiring a few more as time goes on. Uh, but uh, we're also super happy to have you on our advisory board and, and part of the World of Cannabis family, Pat. It's been wonderful talking with you. Uh, thank you so much for sharing uh, your, your story with us. We, we really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Bobby. And uh, good luck with uh, the, the museum. I'm real excited about that. All right. Well, we will definitely keep you uh, advised as the progress moves forward on that. Obviously, the coronavirus situation is going to delay the planning and, and opening of the museum by, by some time, but uh, we're still working on it, and uh, hopefully by next year we'll have it open. Great. I look forward to that. All right. Well, you take care, my friend. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that brings to a close another edition of Canthropology. If you'd like to learn more about Pat Ryan, you can visit his website at pat-ryan-art.com. For more information on the World of Cannabis Museum project or to read our Canthropology blog, please visit our website at worldofcannabis.museum. If there's a guest or topic you'd like to hear us cover or you have an item that you think is worthy of inclusion in our museum, you can hit us up on social media or shoot us an email at canthropology at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this show, we invite you to go ahead and click that subscribe button, leave us a review, share it with friends, and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. A quick acknowledgement to our amazing media partners, Cannabis Radio, Hayes Radio, and Beard Brothers Media, as well as Leaf, Canasaur, Skunk, Canapolitan, and Greenleaf Magazines. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, this is Bobby Black, and I am history.